Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, it finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Paul Burke, a veteran creative whose career has seen him driving vans for Albert Mead Vickers, DJing at Camden's coolest nightclubs, and syncing Blur to a British gas ad, making it one of the best-known synced tracks in UK advertising. Hello there. Hello, Greg. Oh, my word, aren't you young? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear that every day, but uh, thank you. It's a good way to start. Yes, no, I'm properly... I, feel, I think I'm older than Rory, certainly older than Hugh, but um, uh, there you go. Possibly. I mean, we've got, um, we've got a newish lad in our company who uh, was born in, I think, 1999, so... Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, so even, even I'm already at that point of, of thinking, flipping heck, so you don't remember, <laughs> you know, weird things like the World Trade Centre, but... Um, yes, it it yeah, and uh, you know this, that the, the, um, the older you get... Yeah, um, well, it, it's quite it's quite obvious when you think about it. When you're ten, five years is half of your life. I know. Whereas when you're fifty, it's it's a fraction. You know, so know. ten years ago. So you know, I, um, I'll be talking about stuff a very long time ago. Where are you? Did you say you're in uh, London or London, Brighton? North or? London. London, North London. Have yeah. you come, have you have you been have you been to our capital city? <laughs> I have. I'm down there. Yeah. Uh, well, when when we come, when things come down a lot, I remember you saying that, actually. Yeah, of course yeah. You when things yeah. are normal, we're down there a couple of times a month. So, uh, but as you can imagine, you know, like the last time I had a planned visit was 20th of March, and I was watching the news every day, watching the calendar. Oh, they're going to stop me going. They stopped me going. So. Now, has has Media City changed? Because I came up there to do a talk once. Not, you know, well, it was still relatively new a few years ago. And I have to tell you, people of Manchester, I wasn't impressed with the work ethic because we had to wait for a cab to take us back to Piccadilly. And um, the woman was so nice, but it was a different pace of life. And she goes, oh, yes, right away. Yeah, OK, it'll be about 20, 20 minutes. Now, those 20 minutes were between about 20 past five and about 20 to six, in which time the whole of Media City emptied. Yeah. Like there'd be a bomb scare. They all went home at half past five. And if you're from London, that's... What are they doing? You I mean, obviously, some people go. Some people in London go home at three o'clock in the afternoon. But it was it was the mass exodus around the five thirty mark. So I hope that's changed because um, you have to work a bit harder than that. <laughs> yeah, well, so you feel like you you heard the factory alarm bell ring and everyone. Yeah, uh, it was yes, like that. Yeah. They were so yeah. nice. A nice day up there. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I think um, for, uh, maybe maybe it's the case because obviously you guys you can all get the tube, you can all get good transport, yeah. and you know I'm not. I hate to jump on the bandwagon of you know slagging off Northern uh, train services, but they're not great. So what happens is everyone uh, gets on a tram that runs every twelve minutes, which by London time is uh, frightening. Oh, we, there'd be a riot down here if it was twelve minutes. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and then they all so they all get in this sardine tin and all go to Media City, uh, Media City Piccadilly Station, and then all get onto another sardine tin that takes about half an hour to get them. Now, what's worth knowing because um, it wouldn't be the first time I've had to do an ISDN from London to um, a studio in Manchester. Can I can I have your studio then? Your, yes. Your, um, yeah. Because yeah. we're always looking out for good one. You know, the, it's just nice to have one that you know. I had to do one quite recently with an actor called Robert Barthurst. I, I can't remember where he went, perfectly good, but it's nice to know that that um, your place does it as well. Hook yeah. up to one. Well, and I, ISDN's good, but what we found is, um, is, is as good. Is we, we don't even use Source Connect. We do this, 
and I talk to my artist who is doing what you're doing with their own microphone. You go, send me the files, put it in the system, and then you're watching it on Zoom, and you go, just nudge oh, that, and, nudge and, that. And it's good enough. It's good it's, enough with... Oh, fine. Yes, absolutely it is. Although, think, you know, don't... I, I think we just <laughs> say the ISDN. Uh, it, it's a word like, um, have you watched so-and-so? And you go, no, but I've taped it. No one's taped yes. anything since about 1991. Yes. But we say taped when we... And I think we say ISDN when we mean a, a remote link. Oh, the same way, yeah, we use... So some brands obviously become synonymous with the product that they uh, have branded. So the Hoover, you know, mm. for example. The but, Byron. The Byron. And the other one, up north, do you have the car phone warehouse? Oh, Yes which doesn't sell car phones and it's not a warehouse. I think, I think the first one obviously must have been, but uh, no. No, it's just one of those one of those weird things. Yes, it one is. One of those weird things. So uh, it sounds like uh, I've, I've been reading your stuff in campaign um, and often oh, when I'm I... spiteful, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. No, when I, often, when I talk to creatives, I often go to look at their TVCs and things like that. Yeah. But obviously you're the radio man, but I noticed that you're quite passionate about writing as the art form. Well, I uh, always was, to be honest. Um, and I was quite happy doing TV. You know, I've done a lot of telly and press, but I just found radio quicker. Um, TV's too much... I mean, it's just too much faff. I can't... You know, people... Even I didn't realise it uh, when I first went to a TV shoot. I just thought... I know this sounds silly. It was, it was probably before camcorders, but I just thought there'd be a bloke with a camera and, and that'd be about it. And just all the editing and all the crap. And also, I, I, I worked with an art director who I liked very much. I'd love to see him. I, I'm still in touch with him. But my God... He, uh, I always looked like I was lazy and flippant, but he made work where there wasn't work. Oh, I was just going through it. And I found that radio got me away from him. And also yeah. I like actors. And, and radio, if I'm honest, because um, I'm quite a shallow human being, it's the nearest you get to show business. You know, someone off the telly comes out, comes over into a studio and, and reads out something you've written. I mean, what's not to love? And they'll always, not they'll always come if they can't come, they can't come or if the money's not right. But generally they will, you know. They're in the West End anyway, shopping in Selfridges. Well, you first, yeah, we'll earn a couple of grand before you go home. And, and they very often will. I've, I've had, you know, <laughs> do you know who I feel like? You know, in pubs when they used to be the landlord who's met all the big names in the business and there's a photo of him shaking hands with Frank Bruno. I'm like that. I, I, I should have taken selfies with all of them. Yeah. Uh, but no, no, I, I do like it. Because uh, if you are a writer, he says pompously, it is the purest form. Nothing exists on radio till you write it. So, um, yeah, I, I just started doing, I did a couple of things about the, it started ages ago, the lost art of copywriting in campaign. Everyone loved it. So uh, if I want to have a go about something, they'll usually let me. So I do. What do you um, make, I, I, saw your, uh, I saw your piece on, you know, the DNAD, um, somewhat splitting up their writing categories or burying it in other categories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why do you think that's happened? Is it because the market's diversified so much or...? If I'm honest, I, I don't know, and I may, may be speaking out of turn, I think it's money. I think they're trying to attract um, international entries from all over the world, and that's a way of, of doing it. And of course, it is lost in translation. I've been on... I was, I remember I was chairing the radio jury when we had some, we had loads and loads of foreign commercials from Japan or from Germany or from here and there. And yes, we got a script so we could translate it, but we had no idea whether that was a, a posh Japanese person or a common one or, or how that person had um, delivered the line and whether it would have made us laugh. We had no clue. And I just thought it was unfair. And I just think there's been an, an awful lot of that. Whereas visual things, um, 
you know, they do translate across across markets and across. Um, apart from there was an Africa, oh, was it China? Again, a lot of this I'll be making up, not making up. But, um, <laughs> and it's, we read from left to right, and they read from right to left. So I think it was a deodorant, uh, and again, it might not have been as basic as this uh, picture on the left. We, we would go, we would go picture on the left. Um, bloke smelling, middle picture, him putting some de- deodorant on, a picture on the right, a uh, girl going, ooh, aren't yeah. you attractive? Because they read it the other way around, it was the other way. It went, girl going, ooh, aren't you attractive? Him putting this on, her can poor. <laughs> so, you know, you, but with radio, there, there, there'll be a lot of that. So, And also, I, I'm afraid to say, uh, the so-called copywriters in our industry don't really help themselves. Uh, I mean, it's bizarre. I've banged on about this for years. Most copywriters, the people who write the ads in our industry, including the radio ads, are doing it because they were good at drawing at school. You're good at drawing, going to do art GCSE, going to do art A-level, going to go into art college, going to get on the advertising course. And And suddenly, uh, the day comes, and you've done very well, and you're very good at your drawing and your art and everything. And there's a radio brief, and you might not, it's a wholly different skill. And I'm not saying someone who, uh, who's artistically gifted and has been to art college can't do a radio commercial. Of course they can. There's lo- loads of really good ones, but quite often they, they aren't. They don't want to do this. They want to do their print and their digital and their posters. And I don't blame them. That, that's not what they train to do. So <laughs> they're very often not great copywriters. And, you know, I, I did dig out some awful examples for that campaign piece, but they weren't hard to find. I just had a quick look. Yeah, uh, yeah. around town uh, just took me phone out and took a photo of some posters uh, they were all taken on the same day so yeah I thought what was remarkable was that uh, that car advert you displayed uh, and I as you were pointing out obviously couldn't tell the brand couldn't tell what it was that was distinctive about the vehicle you know something I still don't know <laughs> and who, so who signed that off and said yes that will do and for people that don't um, that haven't seen that it's a picture of uh, a four wheel drive vehicle could be anything and it says, um, what did it say? Um, Audacity drives to excellence. You mean, what the fuck? What, what does that mean? And there was no logo. I've, I've, I, so I thought, oh, I like that car. I'd like to buy one. I wouldn't know where to go. No. But the, the, the worst, there's this sort of Esperanto almost that's, that's not English, but people run it in English-speaking countries. And there was this one for... Was it Aperol? Some drink, and it just said it had pictures of people. In, Together we joy, and we go. No, that's not English. Find your happy. No, 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 no that's not English. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. You I sort don't. of know what they mean that it's a joy, but um, I don't know. What do you think of that is? Because so, so it sounds like you were saying that a lot of people can sort of slip in to copywriting from an adjacent, you know, through an adjacent door. They didn't go English, English literature. No, no. I'm not saying they used to. They used to end up in it like I did. Um, Well, because you were a van driver, weren't you? I was a van driver. Your Um, training. (laughs) I mean, I I left school with um, practically no qualification. That's a different story altogether. Uh, Well, very briefly, we, we got, in the final year, what they now call year 13, final year of uh, IRA levels, we got sent to this brand new sixth form college, which wasn't built halfway through different teachers, different anything we had. Um, we were put on a three day week. Uh, the, the place was still being built. And sometimes we'd have a lesson 
and they'd be drilling and hammering and sawing. And we used to get sent home. And I, I remember uh, the teacher said, look, excuse me, we're trying to have a lesson here. You go, oh, sorry, mate, I've, we've got to finish it. And, and anyway, I never went to school. So <laughs> after that, really, um, just fuck off, yeah, bunk off. And I got a job because it was all I was qualified for was in the dispatch department of an agency. And I didn't really know what an advertising agency was. You know, I understood that they made ads, but I was just a fucking, you know, but it was just lovely. It was just a really, I hate the word cool, but advertising in the 1980s was really cool. And you're 18, you go in there and go, wow, this is lovely. So I quickly became what they call a production assistant, getting the ads out to the newspapers because you couldn't email anything. You had to take a piece of artwork or a can of film around a Soho. And after a while, um, I always thought I could write. And gradually, I sort of got myself a little portfolio together. And then someone says to me, look, if you want to write, you're going to have to leave. Oh, what? Because th this agency, by the way, was Abbott Mead Vickers. Uh, it was tiny when I went there, and it became the biggest agency. In, it, it, was it was fabulous. And I had to leave. Oh, not had to leave, but he just said, look, you're never going to be a writer here because people will give, keep giving you pack packages to take to Soho and Fleet mm. Street. You've got to go somewhere else where you'll be, you're starting as a writer. So that's what I did. And that's pretty much, that and playing records as a DJ are the only things I can do. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm not absolutely shit at everything, but I'm not really good at anything else. But like if there was a race of 10 people, I'd probably come fifth. <laughs> uh, I'm not a great cook. I'm hopeless at any sort of DIY, uh, you know, but I, I always, I always like to write and I always love music. So... And of course, yeah, having said, I love music. I can't, obviously can't play a musical instrument. My wife bought me a ukulele a couple of years ago because apparently that's easy. But, and I'm sure it is. It's people say, oh, you know, I'd give anything to play the piano like you. And you just go, yeah, yeah. Would you give six hours, hours a day for 10 years? No, because oh, no, <laughs> yeah. no one. So obviously I could have become a virtuoso ukulele player by now if I just picked it up. Well, if music was only accessible to the people who were highly skilled at it, we'd have almost no market for it. No so, um, but uh, so so, it's good that you've got those two um, conjoined passions. And mm. obviously, we're talk we're talking about the copy now. We'll go into the music later because yeah. uh, so it will stay in your world for a bit. So you felt like people were sidestepping into copy copywriting through no sort of formal qualification. Yeah, they, they, they still are. What? Um, even now, because I do a lot of um, mentoring and talking to students and I hesitate to use the word teaching because I just turn up there every now and again and have a look at what they're doing and advise them and give them talks and things. Uh, they, they're, they're still, well, it's not their fault. They are encouraged to pair up because they're hired in pairs. And it used to be that the you were hired as a writer and an art director and usually... Uh, the writer was a flush, frustrated playwright and, evil, and the art director was, for want of a better, if I'm going to boil it right down, one could write and the other could draw. And nowadays you get them going, oh, we both do a bit of each. And you go, well, we don't, why do we need two of you? Um, and also, again, on, on, a, on a, a different note altogether, that team system was invented uh, by Bill Byrne back in 1950s America. When women didn't go to work, it was just, you know, the guy, you know, him and his, his mate. And, they, you know, it was very good. They were extremely good, but the world has moved on. And I think the team system works against women. It really works against women. Is that because blokes pair up, but they don't pair blokes, up with women? tend to pair up. And I can't prove this, but I think it's true. 
in order to work with somebody, a male, you know, you've got to really like him. Uh, you've got to get on. You've got to think in the same way. You know, you're going to spend a lot of time together. You're going to, going to go away on shoots together. You might be working late together. You might be doing this, that. Say it's a young man and a young woman who really get on, who think the same way, who spend a lot of time together, who go away. What do you think's going to happen? <laughs> and it frequently does. And, um, and they're the ones we know about. Uh, and so most people, male or female, they don't really want that. They want a professional relationship. So it's easier. And I, I, I'd, I'd be exactly the same. Uh, I'd rather just pair up with a bloke than a woman who I might be... It, it, it's so wrong, but it works against women. I think it does. And I think it's time uh, for, for many reasons, including that. And then there's other things. You know, uh, the, you could pair up with a woman and then, uh, you know, she quite rightly goes on maternity leave. And advertising is a ruthless business. So you work with a woman, she's on maternity leave, you are suddenly very vulnerable uh, because your career sort of stagnates. I mean, hers does, everyone knows about that. But everyone forgets about the man with whom she might be working, his career stagnates. All of these mean that men, uh, whether it's excusable, wrong, right or whatever, they tend to pair up. So women tend to pair up. Then, then when you get two women, uh, two young girls, paired up, they get patronised. Oh, you can do the beauty stuff. and the, It's just separate them. It's a dated system. Then uh, for this job, John can work with Sarah and for this one, Nick can work with Bill, you know, and just, yeah. Mix it I, I, think that, I think that's the way it's got to go. And also, I, I think after this um, COVID-19, once we come out of it, you know, agencies' profits and that are going to be decimated and they're going to want... Uh, it's going, to, it's going to be really slimmed down. And I, and I think one of the things that might happen, though advertising is always so reactionary, uh, that might happen is that people don't work in pairs anymore. They work in, they work in, um, they work singular, they call themselves modular creatives or we've invented this new thing. But when you think about the way we buy books, the way we're talking now, supermarkets, cars, they're so, so different. I know you're a young person with a beard, but... Um, even you can remember things being very, very different from how they are now. And yes. I certainly can. Uh, advertising agencies, pretty much the same as the day I went in as a van driver. You know, they haven't changed that much. Uh, a creative team, an account manager goes to the client. It, fine, but things do have to move on. Yeah, so, yeah. that's where, um, obviously, we talked on the phone about our mutual friends at Who, What, Why... Uh, oh, I love them, those boys. Yeah, yeah. great agency. And uh, what I thought was really cool was they founded an agency... Uh, not on the traditional role, uh, the traditional model of creative account handler and planner, but they just said, "Well, why not just pair up three creatives?" Um, well, see, I upset Sean. I don't what? think I did upset him. <laughs> we were out one night, and I, I said something about. Uh, well, I don't know where we were, but um, I said something about our agency. I said, "What do you mean agency?" I thought it was just a creative consultancy. You thought, right. they were, they, you thought they? You thought I thought they just did. <laughs> I think Sean was a bit put out because I said, oh, come on, you're, you're three well-known creatives. Um, and there's something about who, who not, well, not why. It's got three words. Made me think it was um, a very good um, top-end creative consultancy, but that's what I thought it was. I didn't realise it was an agency. But they've done some nice work and they've, you know, well, they're good. It's not, it's not brain surgery. They're very good and they have different strengths. I don't, I don't know Matt, but um, I know Sean and I know Ben. 
Yeah, Matt was the... We all suffer for uh, supporting Queen's Park Rangers horribly. So um, I like them for that as well. Oh, see, I'd love to I'd love to get in the sandpit on QPR, but unfortunately, being from Manchester and sort of barely interested in, in football, I've had to keep my neck out of it because obviously I'm, you know, you're ex- the, the, the question here is uh, City or United. And if you're from Manchester and you say United, you tend not to be too well looked upon. Because, so, well, all the, all the United fans are down your way, so. Well, I, I remember... Um, we were, I can't remember, I was at Fulham with my mate and it was United uh, at Fulham. And the Fulham fans are saying, live round the corner, you only live round the corner. And it's <laughs> loads of kids in my school supported Man United. Yeah. There was, there was even a, a little firm, because I, I go back to the days of football hooliganism, uh, called the Cockney Reds. You know, it was nasty people as well. They used to wear butcher's coats. Anyway, there you are. <laughs> so um, the back onto the, the, the distant past um, a little bit, because uh, in prep for this, I also listened to your uh, appearance on, uh, was Griefcast, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. Uh, a podcast where we uh, talk about our loved ones departing, things like that. Yeah. And, um, but it was a good story, but I uh, obviously came to understand through listening to that that you're part of a... Uh, uh, you, you, you come from a world that I don't know if you would say it's still there in the way that it was when you were born, these sort of, this Irish working class uh, East London background, is, is that accurate? North London, North, North West, London. Um, other than that, yeah. Um, no, I, 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 it's not there in the way it was, um, but I don't think anything is. Uh, I, I just think, it might be, but my dad was part of the um, generation of Irish people who moved to London, you know, in the 50s, to, to rebuild a city still recovering from the Second World War. And, oh, I mean, a lot of racism, lot of, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, uh, plenty of that. And uh, an awful lot of it when the IRA were, were at it in the 70s and 80s. So there's a lot of um, racism, racism towards Irish people. But then um, it got quite fashionable to be Irish. And I remember when it started, it was Ronald Reagan like, uh, but apparently in the 1960s, Kennedy always courted the Irish folk because he was, he was Irish. But um, Reagan had always resisted it. Not that he was ashamed of it. He said, no, I don't want to do that. But I don't know, something, his presidency wasn't going so well in the 80s. And they said, look, you, you, why, why don't you garner the Irish folk? So Ronald Reagan um, went back to the little village in Ireland uh, where his grandfather was born and had a, before he emigrated the States and had a pint of Guinness with the locals. And it just transformed everything in an instant. Um, suddenly, you know, there's the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. He's in a village in Ireland. Ireland, then suddenly Ireland got, um, not suddenly, but they, they joined the EU. There was the Celtic Tiger. There was Riverdance. There was Boyzone. There was Westlife. Mm. And again, going back to when I first started, I remember saying at work um, at Abermead in the 80s, oh, Patrick's night tonight, Paddy's night tonight, and um, someone just, no, not in an asteroid, is it? You know, it would be like saying it's St. Boniface's, <laughs> the patron saint of Romania. Or Nobody knew. And yet, uh, you know, it started in America and just became a really, a really big thing. Nobody drank Guinness, no young people. Guinness was an old man's drink. Yeah. Uh, so I've got really... Um, Really fond memories of my childhood because on that thing, uh, as you all, um, yeah, as you heard, very, very poor. 
uh, but um, but very happy. But again, going back to advertising, um, it used to let people in who who were poor, and I'm not, and it, and not just people from London, far from it. People from the north could come down, and property was quite cheap, or they could they could squat, or even if they rented somewhere, it wasn't that expensive. Uh, and I, I, be, just simply because of the price of property and the, and the price of rentals. Uh, I, I think that's sort of been denied to them. You know, you can't really come down unless you've got parents wealthy enough to sort of help you and support you. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I feel we're missing out on a lot of um, diverse talent. And by diverse, people always think I mean women or black people. I just mean everyone. Yeah, Diversity yeah. covers everything. And advertising always had, well, not deliberately. Um, the, the, the first agency I worked at was Young and Rubicum. And when I, when I look back, that first creative... When I say work, works the copywriter. First, that creative department, they had a couple of black guys, female teams, male, female teams. There was a couple of, seemed really old, probably younger than I am now, older people, young people, people. You know, it would have been a beacon of diversity, but we don't call it, it was just people, you know. Uh, and I, I think that still needs to be the case. We, 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 you know, different briefs need to be um, tackled from different angles, not necessarily from a black person's angle or from a woman's angle, but the the, the greater diversity you have, the, the greater diversity of ideas you'll probably have. And it's not something you can do deliberately. Once you start doing quotas, I mean, I'm horrified by campaign when, when at their school reports that they have to count up, literally count up the number of black and Asian minority people that they're, you know, to get points in their school uh, no no just hmm. don't don't mention it just do it you know what what uh, what agency what organization would not have a fair and non-discriminatory discriminatory hiring policy but just shut up and get on with it <laughs> yeah i think there's probably a, there's probably a time in the 20th century where we said uh, where you would have said in 2019 um we'll be we'll be quite trying to quite specifically count our racial groups and yeah. Uh, you know, and enumerate them. I, I don't think that would be seen as progressive policy. No, no. They'd say, oh, isn't that, uh, what's, what's the Nazis used to do things like that? No, uh, uh, because uh, just by the very nature, uh, uh, if you discriminate in favour of one group of people, you have to discriminate against the uh, uh, another. And what has dismayed me sometimes is a sort of anti-posh thing. Uh, on my way up, if that's not too pompous a thing to say, the posh people were really, really nice to me, really kind, gave me jobs, gave me chances, uh, weren't judgmental, but, you know, they were nice, and um, as they should be. Uh, just, just let, just, you know, let it go. I think there's only two um, questions when you're hiring someone. Are you a nice person? Are you any good? Um, and that's it, you know. Yeah. It seems obvious. We shouldn't be having to say this, but it's true. I, I, when I read your uh, piece regarding the um, the secret Tories in Adland, um, <laughs> you know, uh, professing itself to be the uh, Labour capital of the world, uh, which, by the way, was the worry in when was it they had the devolved mayoral elections? Was it 2016? And uh, Teesside elected a Conservative. Um, and someone quite yeah. close to me in government said, well, then that just shows Labour's become the party of Islington. So, yeah, it has. It absolutely um, has. Because I, I did a lot of work on the Labour Party um, when I was at BMP, when Blair was getting into... And, and you could see it coming. Uh, I don't know, for want of a better uh, expression, uh, when I was younger, uh, the boring uh, little uh, Tory uh, 
the BBC, the, the, the establishment, were Tory, were, if you like, right-wing, and the workers, the uh, the protests came from the left. The Labourers. Yeah. Now, um, the BBC, who were always behind the times, he says to somebody in Salford Media, but now they're, they're, they're sort of boring, if you like, I don't even think they're left-wing, but liberal people, uh, again, out of step with most of the country. And the... Uh, you know, the workers' protests are coming from the right. I'm not making any judgment whether that's right or wrong, but that's just the way it's turned around. I, my mate Frank, and I've got another mate called Mick, who are my age, are probably the, the only two genuine um, working-class Labour voters that I know. Uh, everyone else on Facebook, uh, I, I know for a fact, you know, that they've made a great deal of money, and that's fine. But, um, yeah... Uh, somebody I know was canvassing for um, for uh, Labour down in Kentish Town in North London, which is quite a mixed area. And he said it's quite simple. All the two, three million pound houses are Labour. All the council estates are Tory. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need to know. I'm not saying it's right, wrong. That's all you need to know. And that's no, it, it seemed like it inverted. In November when I was reading uh, Boris Johnson say that uh, the message was we're going to use the, you know, the machinery of the state to bring business, to bring, you know, trade back to mm. the nation uh, uh, and uh, and help out the, the working people who've been out-competed by the international labour market, which I thought was a really unusual thing for a Conservative to be saying at, the, you know, at, the, it, at that given time after sort of, you know, you would have associated the last 20 years of conservative thought with uh, globalisation in trade mm. and getting bigger. Anyway, so it is strange and why things quite skewed the way they did, it's not clear, but it looks like you were saying that it used to be the Tories were the rich party and the Labour were the poor party. And now it seems, I would say, like dogma, especially when you read Facebook and Twitter comments, mm. that Labour is the nice party and the Tories are the nasty party. Well, I mean... I. I don't know, but I, I, I've never seen a political party or uh, in my life nastier than the Corbyn Labour Party. They were vile. They, you know, you'd see the comments on the, on Twitter. And I think they just left it wide open for the Tories. Uh, and it'll be hard to get them out now because uh, in the same way that Labour under Blair, if you like, stole the Tories' policies, you watched them do it. I think Boris will steal Labour's policies. I think he um, has already. Yeah. yeah, I think he has already. And Keir Starmer, I think, is going to, who I like very much, uh, will be a very good and effective leader of the opposition. But I think that's all he's ever going to be. Yes, uh, like a, a proper, a, uh, like the yeah. Queen Mother said, what you need is a strong Tory government with a good old opposition. Like. Good old opposition. But when they say, do you want this man to be the Prime Minister? Probably not. No, do you, you just carry on holding Boris to account. Yes. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. What do you yeah. think about, um, we'll get on to music in a minute because I'm sure we could talk about this all day, but what do you think mm. about the Prime Minister as a communicator, as a speaker? He's brilliant. Yeah. He's really good, you know. Uh, but, you know, again, we don't speak German, but apparently Adolf Hitler was the greatest orator who ever lived, you know. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, he's, he's very good at it. Uh, and, and some people aren't. I mean, you see them in meetings. I'd love to name this bloke who was a really good <laughs> account man, a really nice bloke. But when he out to speak he just had the little voice and in the end you're not listening to it uh and again i know from doing so much with radio that somebody's voice is just so important it's yeah. so important uh there's people you'll listen to and other people could tell you you've won the national lottery you go oh, fuck off I'm like, what did you say what 
and it's to do with pitch. You know, you don't want somebody up there, you know, just after a while it becomes a little bit tiring to listen to. Because uh, they had that trouble with um, Jackie Oatley, who was the female. Um, again, the BBC wanted a female commentator on Match of the Day. Nothing wrong with her. Nice, uh, good, great knowledge of football. But when the, when the excitement happened, her voice went high because it's a female voice. And it, <laughs> it, it just went up there a bit. It was quite hard to listen to. Yeah. Uh, and Boris, he is good at it. He's got an unusual... Yeah, he's, he's a good... I mean, he, he hasn't communicated what he's up to now, ladies and gentlemen. We're, we're, we're in that bit at the moment for, for historians where uh, the lo- lockdown's loosened, but we don't really know how. Yes. Uh, and I think they've been... They're not stupid. That's always been the mistake with Boris. You might hate him, and I can understand why, but he's not stupid. He's no, not he's being, if you're <laughs> criticising him, he's probably smarter than wow. you. <laughs> he's so smart. And I think this vagueness is deliberate so that we don't quite know what we're doing. At the moment, if we said, right, everyone, it's fine, uh, go out, get off with each other, do whatever you want, people go, oh, no, no, I'm too frightened. They've got, uh, even though they might believe that. So I think he's got to be a bit vague. So we start to, um, I've, I've noticed it already, people aren't socially distancing. No. No. In the way that they were. And I think in the same way that the lockdown sort of came from us, they left it a bit late. If, if all the people that were saying, oh, you know, we should have locked down sooner, sooner are the very people who would have called him a, a wicked right-wing yes. dictator if he had. Uh, yes. So it had to come from us. By the time we got locked down, we didn't mind. Oh, yeah, maybe we should. And I think they're doing the same the other way around. Yes, our mutual friend Rory Sutherland noticed that London was empty a week before lockdown was called, and so it's like the lockdown followed public behaviour, not the other way around. No, quite, and I think it's going to be the same. I'd listen to Rory talk about anything like that. Yes. I, I like him a lot um, because he's one of those people, Stephen Fry's another one, there's a nice comparison. Yes. When they're talking, you go, yeah, yeah, I thought that. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that, but I didn't realise I thought it till you said it, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and it, it's when they say things that seem perfectly obvious, but you never thought of that before. That's a gift. That's, you know. And yeah, well, it, so good with behavioural things. Of course he is. So. Yeah, his, I mean, the first, the first thing he pointed out that got me, and he uses it quite a lot, was, I'm sure, have you heard him talk about Red Bull? Yes, it shouldn't have succeeded in a million years. Yes, because it's, it it? it's in a tiny can, it costs a fortune and tastes kind of disgusting. Yeah. But uh, the opposite of Coke was uh, apparently what, what the market was after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. <laughs> so yeah, he's very good. Um, and so he was saying, yeah, lockdown started before it was announced, so to speak. And uh, I have a feeling that there's two things that I, that I noticed. One, I listened to Elon Musk on the Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, they were basically saying lockdown does not compute with American axioms. You know, uh, individual freedom is what America's all about. Yeah. And they don't think the government should tell you what to do. And so it's only going to last so long, maybe a few weeks. And at the same time, you've got Germany getting back to normal and lifting things. And so I was suspecting that we were going to start going, wait, how come they can play out and we can't? So they have to throw us a bone. It's like, well, maybe in June and maybe in July. Yeah. And then it's expectations. It's the oldest trick in the book. Um, Boris is saying maybe in June. So if he says, do you know what? The numbers are down. Uh, let's do this. Because we should be... I don't understand why it's okay. And it's perfectly... I've done it a hundred times um, to queue outside Sainsbury's. And fine, go around Sainsbury's, get your stuff. Why you can't queue outside a bookshop or a clothes shop or, exactly. and still go in there? Uh, 
So that, yeah, I, I don't think um, he or the government, you know, I'm not saying they're perfect or far from it, and I'm not saying they haven't made mistakes, but I don't think it's because they're incompetent and haven't thought about it. Oh, you know, <laughs> they'll have thought about it. Yes. Time. Yeah. Yes, and you can tell at the election, no one was expecting to be issuing a £40 billion a month uh, payout to, uh, you know, furloughed workers. But Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a bit like George W. Bush. Whatever he was going to do, the moment he got in, there was 9-11, which, of course, your colleague won't remember. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and same with Boris. Or any, it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a shame. Whatever they were going to do, they haven't been able to because because of this um, calamity. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, let's get let's get around to some music um, mm-hmm. because we had some questions. I can't remember what they were. Now, but anyway. right. I've got them in front of me. You can't see. I've got a la- laptop down here. Yeah. Oh, so, because um, uh, you were a DJ and you were DJing mm. at what is now Coco, is that right? Yeah, it was Camden Palace. I used to DJ. Uh, I used to DJ a lot. Uh, what happened is I bought a flat, uh, and I just about <laughs> he, he only died recently. Uh, this man, who was the loveliest man, he was my ex-girlfriend at the time in my, in my 20s, uh, her father. He was just a, a lovely, jolly man. And he was a bank manager at a time when a bank manager could make his own decisions. And he ran NatWest. His, his branch was NatWest in West Kensington in London. And um, I shouldn't have really had a mortgage. I wasn't earning enough money. Uh, but he said, no, you won't let me down, will you? Because I'll be in terrible trouble with head office. And, and nice thing, not the nice thing about it was he died recently. He was in his 80s. And he had the most magnificent funeral it was lovely, such a well-loved man. And I saw people that I haven't seen for 30 years and probably never see again, but it was just lovely. And then I think the week later we went into lockdown and I'm so glad he didn't die a week later because yes. if anyone deserved it, that gorgeous funeral, it was him. But he, uh, so I thought, shit, and, and I actually couldn't afford, I really to pay them, not if I wanted to eat or wear any clothes. Mm. So I got myself into further debt and got myself a couple of um, DJ decks because I've got thousands, even then I had thousands of old singles. And I started playing out. And one day I was doing a big advertising party for this lovely, um, he was a real star creative back in the 80s called John O'Driscoll. And O'Driscoll was leaving Abbott Mead Vickers to go and be a director with Paul Wayland. Uh, and O'Driscoll had a party and he goes, um, yeah, you do discos. I've hired this little nightclub. Uh, you don't have to bring your gear, just you've got the records. And that, that's a luxury because the gear was so heavy, the speakers yeah. and the decks. And that. So j- just to have, have to bring my records was wonderful. Uh, so I did this party for O'Driscoll and all the advertising, you know, glitterati were there. Advertising in the 80s, party. I mean, it was fantastic. And it made me look better than I was because almost the moment I got in, everyone's drunk pissed but having a lovely time and the manager of this nightclub said um oh you're good do you want to work here? and so i went from club to club and i ended up in the camden palace a, a couple of nights at stream fellows and i loved it but it does sort of put you off the human race after a while because people would say to you they used to say to me uh you know can you can you do my wedding and you'd go yeah and you couldn't really charge them, could you? And they, then they used to say the thing that was worse than anything. It's all right, you'll know everyone. You'll go, oh, you know, it was even worse because normally I'd be a guest. Yeah. And there were times when I used to say I couldn't make this wedding or this 21st or whatever it was because I didn't want to be the DJ. But I'd love to have gone to the... Yeah. <laughs> and, and if I hadn't been the DJ, I would have been invited. And apparently photographers used to have the same problem. Uh, and I just did it for years and years and loved it. And um, then... One day, one day, um, I was getting a bit fed up with it. Uh, I'd had a baby by then. And 
I was doing this, um, it's not such a thing up in Manchester, is it? The sort of Surrey rugby club, the posh, not posh, but sort of they play rugby and they get their trousers down. And they, they're quite nice people. I'm doing this rugby club wedding and uh, I don't know whether it's the brute the broom, the, the bride or the groom came over. Very nice boat. He goes, big smile on his face. I think the lads are ready for a bit of Bruce Springsteen. I thought, I don't want mm. to do this anymore. Yeah. You're very nice and I will play Bruce Springsteen for the lads, but I won't be doing this anymore. So, yeah, um, when, you, when I, it beca- you became a jukebox. Yeah, just, yeah. And then after that, after that, of course, DJs, I gave out exactly the wrong moment, became superstars. I'm not sure I ever would have been a superstar because it wasn't a full-time job for me. You know, advertising was my thing. This was just a bit of fun. Yeah. Uh, so I never really took it that seriously. And then, of course, now everyone's a DJ. Oh, everyone's a DJ. Oh, they bring their laptops or, or they do a set. I never did a set. I didn't know what I was doing until I got there. I was yeah. looking at whether the crowd were young, old, black, white, gay, straight, you know, do a few, you know, try a few things and just see what's going down well. Don't put all your uh, good stuff on too early because that's like trying to jump on a roundabout when it's going round and round and round. You've got to build it up slowly. Uh, and it, it, it is a skillful thing. Uh, there was a t- actually quite recently, a couple of years ago, I was, I was in this um, agency freelancing for a couple of weeks called Forever Beta, and it was quite cool. It was all open plan. It was in Shoreditch, and they used to do um, the Spotify. I used to wonder where the music came from. And people used to put stuff on Spotify. I said I used to be a DJ, and they said because I'm about fifty years older than any of them, and they said, "Do you want to have a go?" And I went, "No, oh, I show me how it works." Yeah. And I did it, and because I know how to do that, I bung something. Well, of course, no did any work. <laughs> Not literally dancing, but they couldn't concentrate because I, I knew what to do. You know, Brilliant. I wasn't allowed to do it after that. <laughs> oh, well, so because you'd gotten used to the actual mechanics of reading the room and then trying to yeah, I could, see, I could I could see what they might like. Just the meet, you know, not immediately. I'd, I'd been there a couple of weeks, and I thought, oh yeah, I know what they were like. Yeah. Uh, and I think the key is sort of semi-familiar. Uh, a record, which, oh, I've heard this for years, or something people think they've heard. Um, I remember starting it with a old seventies record that didn't even make the charts, but oh, I don't even know who they were. They were called Act One. Uh, and it's a old seventies disco record called Tom the Peeper. And if you can play Tom the Peeper, you'll think you've heard it before. You'll start going like that. Uh, you haven't heard it before, uh, and it was just so. Uh, yeah, music's always been. Um, Something I've loved ever since I was little. I've got four sisters, three of whom were older, uh, lots of cousins and things around me. So the the house was always full of full of records, old old forty fives. And apparently, I don't even I don't remember this. My mum would say when I was about three. Apparently, I'd go and play mummy some records. So I'd pile them up the forty fives, and I knew what they were. I couldn't read, but I knew that that blue one was the Rolling Stones, and that yeah. black one was the Beatles, the one that when she loves you, yeah, yeah. So I knew what they were. Uh, and I used to watch them. I used to watch those singles on the um, on the turntable going round and round and round. I was sort of hypnotised. Yeah, I, I still, I've got records, I've got 5,000 of them down, down in the back room. And I sometimes do that now. And even though they're the same records I could click through on Spotify, there's something about putting the needle on the record. And I'm hypnotised again. I just stand there remembering my immensely happy childhood and adolescence and doing parties for... Camden Palace and John O'Driscoll and uh, and I, I'm lost and then suddenly I'm snapped back into the room where my wife calls me Whoa, what are you doing in there just playing some records yeah. Yeah. so yeah always always important to me how is um, how is music playing a part in your life during the pandemic um, I'll tell you what it is doing is 
Um, of course, I have to. Uh, I, I live with Mrs. Could You Just, Would You Just, one of the most house proud people. And she is, she works really hard. And she's always, I mean, I think unnecessarily cleaning this and hoovering that. And her argument would be, it was up to you, we'd live in a shell. And I go, not really, we just wouldn't live in a, a laboratory. <laughs> sort yeah. of but what she often does, um, and, and you know, I can't say yes, you woman, clean, clean up, uh, especially in uh, this time, I have to join in with a domestic drudgery. You know, I, I can't put a shelf up, I can't uh, plaster a wall, but even I can clean the kitchen and do the bathroom. Well, sometimes she'll do something in the garden. She'll cut some bush down. Oh, I'm so, can you um, chop that up for me? No. <laughs> and I've got to go out there and do something I didn't want done in the first place. But having said that, um, if I can have music, you know, I can, I can do it. It's like music when driving. Uh, something that requires no, no real concentration, like sort of clipping that rose bush up into bits and put it in a bag. And I really don't mind if I've got some music to go along with me. Uh, I, I can't, I could never do any writing uh, accompanied by music. No, that's not actually true, because a lot of my writing, not at the moment during lockdown, uh, but generally, is done in coffee shops. And it's that sort of nondescript Starbucks music. It's just, it's just a noise, and that's just enough for me. Whereas if it's a record like Tom the Peeper or anything I might recognise, I might start singing along with. So I can't put something on because I'm, I sort of know what I've put on, and I've put it on because I like it. Yeah. So that will put me off. Uh, but if it's mindless drudgery, of which there's been quite a lot lately, uh, yeah, music's been very important. It, it, yeah. I, I, I don't understand. For someone who says they don't like music, is to to me, it's like saying, "Well, I, I don't really like food." Yeah. But then some people, some people don't. They, you know, I just, I just think it's got the power. Uh, uh, I've always liked, you know, singles, seven-inch singles, because uh, this is such a generalisation. Most tracks on most albums are shit. Not all of them, <laughs> but um, there, there's a uh, you know, killers and fillers, and, and a lot of them are fillers. Uh, yeah. But I, yeah, it just. Again, I'm hopelessly nostalgic. Um, I'm useless, but I've got a good memory. I can remember things. Like if I meet someone, they say, I don't you remember me. I'll think, yeah, I went to school with you. I remember your brother's name was John. You lived here. And if I were to say that, then you're a fucking stalker. <laughs> and, and so music, I've only got to hear certain records from those days. And I'm right back there. And I remember the people. I remember where I was. And it's lovely, you know. Uh, and, and because I've got more time on my hands as we all have we're not going out to the cinema we're not meeting friends for drinks uh, I've had more time to indulge in that sort of misty-eyed nostalgia uh, yeah. so yeah I, I've enjoyed that What records have you been reaching for? Um, I've got them all in alphabetical order and I'll just take a handful I, um, I, I'll know them all because I bought them all but um, yeah, sometimes I, I, I tend not to like, um, you won't find me liking things like, although they've made a couple of good tracks, a couple of good, <laughs> people like The Clash or Elvis Costello or Bob Dylan, I'm not interested in music, particularly with a message. I'm not that interested, for somebody who writes, I'm not that interested in the lyrics. Yes. I tend to like music that is either about kissing, dancing or both. It's more, <laughs> my dad used to say, it's an old-fashioned thing, oh, it's got a good beat. But I, I do like records that have got a good beat, got a good rhythm, got a good yeah. vibe. That's a better way of saying it. I'm yeah. only saying what my dad used to say, but I'm saying it in a cool way. Yeah, got a good vibe. That's why I tended to um, reach towards soul and reggae, not exclusively by any means. But um, 
I do like that sort of stuff. Does your uh, music taste have a cutoff point historically, or does it? Is it still expanding? Are you still finding stuff from the current, contemporary? Now era? and again, um, I think it's because not as much. I think you do become your own father. For me, it was sort of mid nineties. You just hear something and go, "What's this rubbish?" In my day, they played a proper. Ah! Yeah. It's happened to me, you know. Uh, I, I tell you what, I was never that keen on. Although there have been some brilliant tracks, is hip hop. <laughs> I just thought it's a bit boring, isn't it? It's just James Brown. I, I know that. I know that track. When I first heard the message by Grandmaster Flash back in the eighties, thought it was one of the most astonishing pieces of music I've ever heard. I still think it is. Eh, I don't know hip hop. Mm, no, I'm just not that keen on it. It's um, <laughs> sounds old fashioned. It's not really. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but it may be, it's not really music. It's somebody talking over a, a well-known backing track. And also, when I was a child, I mean, you know, people can do what they want, but the black kids around my way, their parents were Jamaican, so it was their culture. It was, um, you see a lot of people with woolly hats and, and, and a lot of reggae. I mean, reggae was the soundtrack of my youth. You know, if you come from London, particularly where I came from, um, it, it was all around you, and I loved it. Maybe it's because it was my childhood. And those kids, that was their culture. And, I'm, and you can do whatever you like. But I just find kids identifying with uh, black American, sort of rap culture. Hang on, this do do with you. <laughs> it's like me wearing a cowboy hat and, and, and a pair of, you know, cowboy boots and walking around the street. Again, you can do what you like, but I find it a bit odd. Uh, but again, I, I, I'm too old. I shouldn't be into, um, you know, 21st century hip-hop. It'd be a bit strange if I were. Yeah. I mean, John Peel used to say, he made a very good point. He said that he is interested in current music because in the same way that he follows the current Liverpool team, he doesn't follow the Liverpool team from 1965. So I get what he means. Uh, but no, I, I also think that when you're younger, I mean, you know this from when, from when you were younger, you've got, you get this course on your time. You know, music and football is everything because you haven't got you haven't got a family, you haven't got a job, you haven't got a mortgage, and those things take precedence. And also, as they should, you can't you can't um, you know you, you just can't concentrate quite so heavily on that for the rest of your life. No, I think um, that's what encourages uh, encourages people to be like Peter Pan. It's like you know, I really like my cultural choices being the centre of my life and the thing about which I argue most passionately. And all I see for people who have grown up is is boring, oppressive responsibility. I want to stay like this, thank you very much. Mm. And eventually you see 40-year-old, 20-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, th things, I mean, again, when I was a child, I mean, you know this. I don't know if it's true for you. It's certainly true for me. There, there was a very big difference between... Uh, young people and their parents. Yeah. Whereas now it's sort of melded in a way. It has done for a while. And things haven't really changed. I mean, there was a film that came out in 1979. Uh, I remember it so well because I worked in a cinema at some sort of countless times called Quadrophenia. Quadrophenia was set in 1964. It was all about mods and rockers. So there's only 15 years between the setting and it came out. Honestly, when we went to see it, it was like watching Downton Abbey. It was like watching a period drama. It seems so long ago. Because during that time, from 1964 to 79, you had uh, modern rockers, you had um, skinheads, you had glam rock platform shoes, uh, you had punk, you had the beginnings of um, new, rom new romantic spandau ballet and uh, Duran Duran. All that had happened. And it wasn't just little fringe 
um, groups, the whole country wore platform shoes. Uh, when you were, when I was a, when I was little, teenage, teenagers were either skinheads or sort of, not necessarily hippies, but long-haired. It was everyone. And the whole country wore platform shoes. The whole, it, it, it was mass, mass culture. Whereas now, uh, the clothes I'm wearing now, the clothes you're wearing now, um, you could have worn in 1985, 1990s, is exactly the same. Really, you know, your hair is as it would have been sort of there. I think the 80s was the, was the last time people had a style that you could strongly identify with an era. You know, the big shoulder pads and the big hair and all that. Oh, my job, I've got big hair at the moment. Uh, <laughs> it's only going to get bigger. Uh, so... The, but it sort of melded into one. That might be because um, of the advent of CDs, where you could buy all the old music. So young people, and especially with Spotify and Mixcloud and things like that, they're, they're exposed to as much old music as they would as they were new music. And I now think that popular music, in my head, was a, a sort of forty-year period between about 1955 and about 1995. I would say that because that's the duration of the seven-inch single. You now they started around mid fifties and began to be phased out again, but phased out big time uh, in the mid nineties. And I now think it's become like classical music. You know, if you're a twenty-year-old, you can be into Bob Dylan or the Beatles or Elvis, in the same way that yeah, you, know, you could be into Beethoven or Mozart. Obviously, you weren't around when Beethoven was around, but you're still into it. It's still your thing. And I think that's becoming uh, increasing the way. Like my son is in his 20s. He, he, likes, he really likes proper Miles Davis, John Coltrane jazz, which is far too young to remember. Even I am. Uh, so I think that's the way it's gone. So new music is finding it harder to poke its way through. Yeah, uh, because the digital service providers like Spotify and Apple Music uh, the buy-in is the same for the legacy stuff as it is for the new stuff. So if you try, and we, I was talking to Rory about this, if you go to a record store, Piccadilly Records, My Local, or um, Rough Trade, whatever it is that you do in London, um, mm. buy, a, buy a new Beatles LP retail price, looking at about 30 quid still. Mm, I've seen them, yeah. And um, new, new stuff often has to be more competitively priced. Uh, on streaming, the buy-in is, in, is is so low; it's identical for every single thing. It's yeah. a double click. So, do you, are you saying you think that's reshaping the culture somewhat? It's making the current era less defined and a bit more. Yes. Yeah. Uh, again, because going back to when I was young and Rory was young, uh, you only really had the charts. Uh, you, you got the charts on Radio One, which is like religion, and Top of the Pops, which was on Thursday. And those records were everywhere. That's why we can all sing along to lyrics of songs from the 70s. And when you look them up, it wasn't even a big hit. It got to number 28 or something like that because we heard them. That's all we heard. Uh, and once that, yeah, they were oldies record shops and um, the radio stations would play some oldies or they might go, here's the chart from 1963. But generally, it was it was all very current. And once those records went, they were quite hard to get. Yeah, you might get them in a, in a secondhand shop or in a, in a in a charity shop or something. Of course you would, but you couldn't just get them. You didn't have access them uh, to any record like like you have now. So you tended to concentrate on the. Um, I mean, I collected all those records, and they were quite hard hard to get. You know, there, there could be a record. I used to have a list of ones I was looking for. Ones that ones that I heard on the radio. Uh, there used to be a fantastic DJ on Capital when I was a kid called Roger Scott. And Roger Scott was brilliant. He used to play. Um, he was just a DJ who played records. I know that sounds 
silly, but that's all he did. He wasn't interested in being on the telly. He had a thing called the Capital Hit Line, where people used to, it was such a simple thing. They used to phone in and nominate the best new record at the moment. And the one that got them, they made a chart out of it. Simple as that, just phone calls. Oh, he's voted for Kate Bush, Wuthering Heights. He's voted, you know, and they compile a chart. And Kate Bush, Wuthering Heights, um, uh, Gary Newman, uh, uh, Chubwami, Our Friends Electric, so many records of that era would never have been seen without him. But the other thing he did on a Friday night is he played um, a thing called Cruising. It was just 50s rock and roll. Because there, was a, there were more Teds, let me tell you, from first-hand experience, there were more Teddy Boys uh, in the 70s and there were punks you know it, the rock and roll it, it was a, a massive it was the first time that nostalgia became a thing this is where it all started uh, the, the teenagers from the 1950s were now in their 30s and had got married and wanted the music of their youth and, and so they started making things like Grease you know and American Graffiti and then it kicked off with the death of Elvis and Old music, old music became a big thing for the first time. It yes, had come around now and yeah. then by the Carpenters. Yeah, all, all that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, if the fifties, the seventies was a decade obsessed with the fifties, and Roger Scott used to play those records. Nice to make what like that one was called, and I'd, I'd have a list I just keep in my pocket. And um, now again, I'd come across them, and there used to be a massive secondhand record shop down in Croydon called Beano's. I'd go all the way over there and see what they had. Uh, but that's how you really had to hunt it out. You to be into music, you had to be into music. You couldn't just uh, get a Spotify playlist. You know, I, I'm not saying that, and we'd have given anything for a Spotify playlist in those days. I'm not saying, oh, it's a bad thing. But yeah, and record shops themselves were just great places to hang out. I mean, I'm sure you've heard all this before. It's but you've heard it all before because it's true. You'd go there yeah. and people, what's that? Can you know? It's yeah. got a male thing, I must say. <laughs> Not too many women in there. Uh, Devastatingly, but uh, yeah, there was a there was a silo for the interested for the the for the the people who were religious about music. Whereas, I mean, I remember being skeptical when I saw there was an interview with Morrissey and Russell Brand. Morrissey said, uh, "If you were interested in music, you were a peculiar person because it was a peculiar thing. Not like now, where everybody makes CDs in their bedroom." And yeah. it sounded like cynical old man at the time because I was about, you know, 18. But the more I uh, hear about it, the more I consider it, the more it seems likely that if you weren't going to be spending your disposable income on music, then you weren't going to be going to a record store, so you weren't going to be meeting that crowd. So You've got a point. The same is true of football. Um, there was a time in the 80s where Match of the Day was taken off the air. There wasn't that much interest in it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but there still was, you know, the, the grounds would be packed. So, yeah, to a certain extent, that was true too. It, it just wasn't all available. It wasn't, um, wasn't there, wasn't there for everyone. You it, hadn't been, yeah. it hadn't been middle class either. What yeah. really annoys me is, um, for instance, uh, a soul singer that I like uh, called Betty Wright died recently, and it's happened to, with a lot of um, black artists. And the Guardian, the Observer, they're all over it. The Betty Rennett, marvellous. Yeah. Was she was she uh, Shura Shura? Shura Shura. Yeah. And the clean-up woman. Yeah, not a huge star, but good. And I just think with the Guardian, yeah, I remember the 1970s. You didn't have a lot of time for black music or black people, did you, really? Yeah, you so do you, think, do you think that's, uh, yeah. the, that's the modern uh, left-wing yes. uh, issue? It's, of it's, that, it, it's, again, it's... Uh, Co-opting. I'm not saying you can't co-opt working. It's a bit sort of, oh, no, it's cultural appropriation. I always remember um, not that long ago, Lily Allen was on Desert Island Discs, and she one of her tracks was uh, Pulp, Common People, mm -hmm. 
and she couldn't see, clearly couldn't see the irony that yeah. she was the very girl that um, it was about. Jarvis Cocker was ridiculing. <laughs> couldn't yeah. see it, but there you go. You know. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I, I was interested to know what you make of that. Uh, I've, been, I've been thrown for a loop slightly thinking about Jar- Jarvis Cocker, but um, it I was about. Uh, oh, what have you done? I did Sainsbury's with him. I cast him as the voice of Sainsbury's. I do a lot of voice casting. Uh, and I cast him as the voice from St. Sainsbury's TV commercials. And when I met him, you know how yeah, you just go like that on someone's shoulder and we've all got flesh. It was the boniest shoulder. Ah, yeah. All I remember, it was literally just, there was no flesh. Like, there's no meat, literally no meat on him at all. Yes. Uh, but he's just, he has got a lovely voice. Well, in fact, let's um, let's uh, let's let's go into that a little bit, just about the the actual the, the work back into the creative. Because I was interested to know what you thought. Firstly, on music, what's the best music you have uh, seen synced or heard synced? If it was a radio advert or, or composed? Um, oh God, I'm going back years. I think there's no funnier using music with, uh, than the old Hamlet ads. The uh, you know just just. It just became synonymous at a really weird, obscure jazz version of um, Bach's Aria and a Dream String. The other one, of course. Oh, was that for- Jack Lucier? Jack Lucier, yeah. yeah. Which I've got on an old seven inch single on Decca. Brilliant. I was never looking for it, but I just thought, God, you know, uh, Jack Lucier. And the other one is um, famously just coming to my head is um, Delib, the flower duet of the British Airways music. It just just sound it, it just became the British Airways music and they used to play it as you got onto, got onto the plane years after years after it was used and also the way Levi's did the um, in the 80s and 90s they did old 50s and 60s for example. I wish I'd done that I'd always wanted to get some of my old singles on um, uh, onto ads but I, I seldom did the only one I did do was um, hardly oh my god aren't you amazing but I put the opening bars of Blur's The Universal on British Gas. You did that? I did that. <laughs> and 20 years later, I'm still hearing that. Yeah. Um, I think it faded out for a while, they brought it back. The other one, the other ones I have done, uh, I was asked to do the, just find some tracks for, um, you know, Marks and Spencer's, this, is, this isn't any food, this is M&S. And I think I didn't come up with, Samba Party by Santana. Then they wanted um, a replacement. And I don't, I don't, I, it wasn't even an official thing. I just thought Albatross by Fleetwood Mac. Again, it's that s- semi-familiar thing. I know this, but I don't quite know what it's called. Yeah. Because it's 50 years ago. And then they wanted to replace Albatross. And I suggested Asleep in the Desert by ZZ Top or the opening bit of Big Log by Robert Plant. Again, mm. you'd half know them. And I think... They just went for True by Spandau Ballet. Yeah, which was, well, are we thinking of the same era of, M- of M&S yeah. where they were doing Groove Armada yeah. by the river? They did that as well, yeah. Yeah. The same, yeah, they, they, they'd refresh it every now and again. Yes, so, Groove Armada has nothing to do with me. How does this, so how does this work then? Because obviously you aren't or have never been formally a music supervisor, have you? No, not at all. So is this just because you are the creative? So you, you, you know, you have. I wasn't your... the creative. It's just um, people used to know I was a teacher. It really was as informal as that. There was a lovely, well, not say lovely, just a brilliant um, commercials director called Frank Budgin. And Frank used to, um, oh, he used to work at the HCR work before he became a director. And he's very quiet. Frank used to be like that. He died sadly, but he was 
probably the greatest commercials director ever lived, I think. But he would appear in my door and go, what's that record? You know, uh, 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 and I was fucking, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> and I remember once he was doing this, and because he's quite a shy man, so it probably took quite a lot for him to do that. And, and I used to feel awful because I had no idea what it was. But one day uh, I managed to get... Um, managed to decipher Stood Up by Ricky Nelson. But again, it wasn't YouTube. You couldn't just go... Uh, I'd have to say, Frank, I think it's Stood Up by Ricky Nelson. Then he'd have to send out and they'd go to HMV and get a CD of Ricky Nelson's... And then you'd find... Whereas now you'd just go, YouTube, is that it? You know. No, yeah, no, oh, yeah. No, I've never been an official music supervisor and I don't know enough. Was that... Well, that surprised me because obviously you've got a, um, you've got a reasonable library in your head of yeah. tracks but um, was there not as big of a market for music supervisors back in the 90s as there is now no there wasn't uh, simply because uh, I, I think if you wanted to set yourself up as a music supervisor it would be much easier to do it now of course it would because um, it's so much easier to call up all the references and because it was quite hard people just used to suggest stuff like I used to I think they, they wanted Bittersweet Symphony by the Verve Mm. for British Gas and I just went oh I'll tell you what similar <laughs> Blur the universe it doesn't sound like Blur it sounds like a, an old classical yeah because that's how it starts uh, yeah it was it was generally like that I think you, you you did get people involved but it tended to be more more for commissions you know obviously there were music companies and I've worked with Howard Goodall uh, oh he's brilliant that was proper genius yeah I mean he I did I didn't invent the music but I, I worked on some Bartley card ads in the 1990s with Rowan Atkinson and it's just like a James Bondy thing it starts off it's only a stink and you think how fucking difficult is that but it's perfect you know yes. it's because you, know, you, you wouldn't have thought of that and there, there used to be an, an old we used to use a lot called Joe and Co an old guy called Joe Campbell who was old when I was young uh but again, I remember do, doing a commercial with him. I can't remember it was four, but he just put some piano music on. Yeah, watched it a couple of times. Mm, yeah. Mm. Right, here we go. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and just played along. And that was it. Done. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in awe of anyone who can play a musical instrument. In awe. That oh, magic right. tricks and impressions. If you can do any of those three things, you're really cool, aren't you? And yeah. if you can do all three, it's like having the oh, E-dot. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is when you were going through that process, was there ever um, a choice, a music choice you saw on an ad, radio or otherwise, or, or TV, and you thought, that's perfect, the client has got to go for it, and then the client didn't go for it? Um, not really, because I, I have to say, the amount of commercials that contain uh, music that's been either licensed or specially commissioned is quite rare uh, when I've put it on radio I must say only because the budgets aren't there it's it's library music it's audio network or KPM or something like that and engineers and studios I mean you're a perfect example sound designers music sort of goes with the territory so they know what would sound right and then you say you know it, it's as basic as this the transfer department will dig out a few sort of disco-y records or classical and you know again you, you can input it in and, and find one that fits. So that's generally what I've tended to do simply because with radio there isn't usually a budget for a big um, a, a big track. But I tell you what I did do. 
The mm. first commercial, I don't mind admitting this now, the first commercial I ever produced was for The Guardian and it was about Margaret Thatcher being in power for 10 years somewhere. And uh, I put on, it, they, they were serialising her book or Hugo Young's book about Margaret Thatcher. And I just got, um, I got Roger Scott to do the voiceover. I met Roger Scott. Uh, I, it was, um, I got I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Went down to a HMV, CD, original version, stuck it on. I honestly had no idea you had to license it. You know, I was that. The producer was a what? Missy only ran for one day. Tomorrow in the Guardian, <laughs> and it had that on it, and it was um, yeah. And so we're just thankful there was no uh, there was no bots yeah. that could detect copyrighted material. No, exactly. And I'm telling the absolute truth. I know ignorance is not accepted in a court of law, but I, I didn't know. Yeah, I just thought you could use what you like. Yeah, you know. No, that's now where, that's, that's, I mean, I don't know how the prices have changed, but I'm guessing they've gone up significantly because that's now a significant part of uh, artists' income is sync. You know, we, uh, we, I've told this story already uh, to, certainly to Rory. I don't want to bore my own non-existent audience with the same anecdote, but we were asked to license a Paul Simon track, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. And uh, publishing only, they wanted half a million quid. Wow. Yeah, so it's uh, not quite in the radio ad budget, I don't think. Not quite. No. Because it was that weird thing that Paul McCartney, Michael Jackson owned Paul McCartney's publishing and yeah. uh, Paul McCartney owned Buddy Holly's. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a whole world. It's, it, it's, it's legal. It's nothing to do with creativity, isn't it? That's it's right, legal. yeah. And obviously, I'm sure, oh, I don't know, but they asked for half a million as a, not expecting you to pay it and you go, well, how about, how about 100 grand and yeah. something somewhere in the middle? Yeah. Yeah, but pr- it, price to say no, we think. Yeah. yeah. Or, or there is that. Yeah, 500 grand and you say no and if you're fool enough to say yes, well, fine. Uh, mm. So, um, on the, uh, back on the industry itself uh, briefly, why do, what would you, what is, because you said you do some teaching, what is your advice to young people as to why working in uh, advertising, working in the creative industries is worth pursuing. Because as you know, back onto the point before about, you know, axioms about Labours and Tories, um, advertising is seen as, uh, I don't know exactly what, but certainly not exactly, not favourable amongst young people. I don't want to do advertising. I want to make proper films and proper music and proper yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. Um, if there were a place across the road called Creative School... I know I'm bound to say this, but in the 1980s, uh, if you were a top student at creative school, you would want to go into advertising because it was really cool. And um, A, it's not so much now, just because, uh, oh, I don't know, agencies, they they don't seem to have the creative talent anymore. Uh, They're more scared of losing business and that'll only worsen after this. uh, So they're less likely to push creative ideas to the client. If the client wants something bland, they just roll over and let them have it. So advertising to the outside world, you know, it's an old cliche, but people just like, oh, I prefer the ads to the programs. Yeah, when's the last time you heard anyone say that? Yeah. Uh, 1997 or something. But, so it's difficult. And also, a lot of things have happened since the 80s. You can make uh, YouTube videos, you can become an influencer, you can... Gaming, I mean, obviously I'm too old for gaming, but I do understand that that's a massive industry that needs creativity, that needs writing, that needs art direction. So um, the top 
the most creative people aren't necessarily being attracted to it. Uh, and I just think advertising itself has to improve. It's a vicious circle. It has to improve to attract the creative talent, but it has to attract the t- creative talent to improve. My, um, I'd just go back to basics. If you can write and you can draw, not necessarily draw, but if, if, you, if you're visually gifted or you know how to hit the keyboard keys in the right order, concentrate on that. Concentrate on the craft. Be good at that. Uh, obviously, you've got to have ideas. Um, every ad, every, every, everything has to have an idea. Like, say, when we're allowed out, where should we go tonight? This, but, yeah, that's an idea. Everything has an idea. But the example I always think of is Ricky Gervais going to the BBC with his, with his idea for the office. Mm. What's your idea, Ricky? Well, it's about an office. It's about a really boring bloke in a boring office with some boring people and not much happens. Yeah. They're going to go, it's not going to get very far. But of course, the difference was the writing and the casting and the craft. And that has got to be, people have got to concentrate on that. And the people in the agency, the senior creatives, have come up at a time where craft wasn't really valued. So they wouldn't, not all of them, there's some great people. Hugh Todd's a great person. He'd know good craft when he sees it, but a lot of them don't. Uh, so that has to be drummed into people. You know, do it. If anything's done well, made well, whether it's an ad, um, a piece of furniture, an old soul record, if it's made well. Like you, you hear the, you know, old Motown records, the backing, the, 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 or, or particularly old Philadelphia stuff, the Gamble and Huff stuff, the way the orchestration, the arrangements, uh, they've lasted because they're literally well made. Yes. And the, 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 the same craft has got to come through in advertising. Make it well, it will last, and people will want to be part of it. That would be my advice. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's move forward. And try and make that happen. Although it's obviously, mm. uh, I'm, you know, people my age are going to have to be carrying that mantle in the next ten years. And you know, so I do don't. You well, I don't because I, I, you know, I'm I'm 27. I don't know if people my age are sort of. Um, I don't know if they're prepared to deal with clients, especially not in the creative world. Do you know what I mean? As in prepared, sure. taught to, trained to. I don't think I'm quite fortunate because my sort of upper management here is from the let's call it the harsher realms of the business world. Um, where there's no creativity and it's all about just selling stuff and just getting the numbers on the board and you know getting the clients in. So, mm. so I've had some good tuition for that reason, but uh, but yeah, I, I know it's probably no it's no easy thing to go to a client with all of the budget and all of your account in their GIF and say what you really should do is this idea and not the one you want. Well, the creatives traditionally didn't do that. That's what account handlers did. And I, I, when I was not even younger only a few years ago, uh, people talk about selling an ad to the client. Yes. Now they talk about sharing an ad with the client. And in that little bit of linguistic is, uh, is a lot of what's wrong. You sell it to, you, you say, this is what you know. We've all been sold to. We've all been convinced to do things. Uh, and if you do it well and give good reasons, that's a real skill. You know, there's some brilliant, brilliant salespeople in advertising. And there's a famous story about Frank Lowe, who founded Lowe Howard Spink. He was in a meeting and they were showing the final cut of this film and everyone loved it, but this awkward client was going, no, no, I don't like it. So apparently Frank Lowe said, yeah, play it again. And the client looked at it and Frank turned to the client and said, um, yeah, he's, uh, you know, uh, I think you've got a point. I don't like it either. And they were astonished, God. What? So Frank said, no, I, don't, I really don't. 
to play it one more time. So I play played it one more time and Frank looked at it again, turned to the client and said, you know what, I think we're both wrong. And by not isolating the client and saying, you fucking idiot, is, is what he was probably thinking. Uh, and that's how he's, that's selling. That's, that's convincing. I, I don't know what ad it was, but... Uh, whereas it's just share with the client. Did you like this? What do you think? Uh, did you know I would go and do something else? I watched it happen. You know. Yeah, I've been, I've been I've been in this very room with brand managers and creatives and account handlers. Sometimes with the account handlers being the quietest people in the room, mm. but there is always that. Well, whenever it's happened in here in this very seat, there's always a little. Here's the client. There's an orbit of nervousness around mm. them with everyone kind of. Is this? Are you? No. Or should we change it? I, I, again, with recordings, I don't mind if the decision makers in the room. Uh, I remember having to do some work for the Met Police. They were horrible. I'm going to get nicked now. <laughs> but you know, they, they weren't actually policemen. Uh, they weren't from the police. They were from the civil service, and oh, they, they were always trying to get the budget down. And I said, right, we can do it for this much, but this is an hour in the studio with the artists. Blah blah blah. All fine. That's how much it will cost, but. That doesn't allow for any re-records. Yes. You know, we can't come back. So please, can we have a... It's no problem, but please, can we have a decision maker in the room so that after 55 minutes, we can go, yep, yeah, that's it, fine, approved. Yes, we can. So they're sitting there. And then they, uh, we did that. And then, of course, the following day, it's... Um, oh, yes, we took it back to Sheila or Brian or someone, and, and they just like to change... <laughs> which meant getting the voice back in and the studio, which was extra money, and then they wouldn't pay it. You just go, oh, we right. told you, you know... Uh, oh no, the budget is only... Uh, so there's a lot of that. And a lot of people try to double-guess the client. And the other one is the junior client says, yeah, this is brilliant. Oh, I'd love this. Absolutely amazing. So you go to the next meeting and, and he's in there with the senior client. Senior client doesn't like it. And you go, hey. And he's sort of looking down. <laughs> but you, in the last week, you said you really liked it. Come on, stand up to your boss. And they never do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there you are. You know, it, it, I don't think that's ever changed. I think yeah. that goes back to people not wanting to displease the emperor in you know, in 400 BC. I, I think nothing's yeah. changed. Yeah, very very difficult to speak upwards in your hierarchy. You know, easy to broadcast down. Yeah, no, quite. Uh, as you get older, they don't care. And you know that old saying, you can't beat a man who doesn't care. That doesn't mean walking around naked and telling everyone to fuck off, but just actually saying what you think. Yeah, was it if you, if you uh, stand for something, some people agree with you, some with... Oh, if you stand for nothing, no one will agree with you and no one will disagree with you. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's good copy right there. <laughs> Something like that. I forgot. <laughs> so good, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Great slogan. Got. Uh, we'll do two more questions and then I'll um, I'll let you get back to it, whatever it is. And what, what is it at the moment? What are you keeping busy? Well, it, it is, um, I, I, I did this um, piece, not piece, uh, did an actual commercial from scratch, from this room, without leaving it. Uh, it's just a little animated ad for a phone company or a SIM card company, you know. Mm. You have a thousand free minutes for an engineer, all that. But it can be done. Um, as you said, the um, very nice voice artist called Emily Raymond has got a little studio at home, so she did that. I could hear her on the phone. I didn't do it on Zoom, but I could hear her. And she recorded, sent me the files over. Uh, animated, obviously, because you can't shoot anything. Like, well, you can shoot live action, but it's animated. All put together, you know gone to the post house, gone to uh, a nice, neat little sound design. It's all been put together. So I've just got to put that out in Facebook and boast about it. Great. Me, I can do that all on my own. So um, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. So you're the one who's going to be putting the creative departments out of work. 
Yeah, about time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're about time. Oh, not all of them, obviously. I just think all... Because it's a really weird thing. If you're in any sort of creative endeavour, like you're a musician or an artist or a writer or a playwright, you work for everyone. You, you're a freelance human being. And you go, what? You're, you, you're yoked to one company, a great big thing called WPP or yeah. Omnicom. I, I just think all creative should be freelance. Uh, you know, just like directors are. And you watch, <laughs> I'd say about 75% of them would never work again. Yeah, oh, uh, what, if they didn't have to go and find their own work? Yeah, oh, God, yeah. yeah. Well, they'd be found out. I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I just think a lot of them, and there are many, many exceptions, but a lot of them, if they were, if they were doctors or footballers or electricians and were as bad at what they're supposed to be good at, they find it hard to find work, and I've worked with a lot of them. Uh, it, it's a problem. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, uh, well, it, it may go that way because obviously the, with Rory, we were talking about this um, a debate going on in the Ogilvy upper management, you know, in light of COVID, how much do we really need all these office spaces with all these people in them? I mean, uh, Ogilvy's office is spectacular. Yeah. Right on right on the Thames. And sea containers. Got, yeah, sea containers. And they've got a nice, not even a posh restaurant, just where you can go and have your lunch, you know, Ogilvy, because I've been up there many times, and it, you know, on a gorgeous day, right on the Thames, looking down at Tower Bridge and St Paul's, it's wonderful. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of people will discover, not the people themselves, uh, the bean counter. Yeah, well, we don't need to pay these exorbitant rents. You know, people can do this. Yeah, I think I think that's the way it's going. I think it would have gone that way anyway, but COVID nineteen has accelerated a lot of trends that may well have been in place. Some of them not great, but some of them will be for the be for the good yeah uh, while we're on the uh, agency thing what's the best one that, are, that you've worked for what's your favourite agency oh, BMP which um, became Adam and Eve uh, ah. uh, is, there a re- is there a reason they rebranded well they got take uh, it was like a reverse takeover it was a fantastic agency and I'm not just making this up uh, then I left <laughs> no, around the time I left it, it, it was it was on its way downhill it really was uh, it it merged with DDB. It was BMP DDB when I was there. I was there for 15 years and it was voted the agency of the half decade of the greatest agency of the latter half of the 20th century. And then it got, had a merger with Adam and Eve, which is only a small agency, very good. And they've made their name, but very tiny, but they made their name doing John Lewis. And it was like a reverse takeover. And they've been fantastic. They, you know, they're just really good. I've done work for them since, as Adam and Eve, and they're just really smart. When you get a brief, you know, like we said about Rory, uh, uh, like with the planners, you go, yeah, go, yeah, say, yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, they were really good. Also, they were quite organised. They paid on time. You know, just, just good, just professional. Uh, so in, that was the best agency I ever worked at. And I think had I been a copywriter when I was a, a mere van driver, I think Abbott Mead in the early 80s, AMV was pretty special. It was only tiny then. But the work that came out of it, the work, if you like, I was brought up with, the work I wanted to emulate, it, those seeds were sown there. I'm not saying I ever reached the heights of David Abbott or Richard Foster or Chris O'Shea, who were the top writers there. But that's what I aspired to. And, and that's what I still do. So, yeah, th- those two places, Abbott Mead then, certainly not now, and BMP in the 90s was fantastic. 
Is there um, a plan? Are you you're a freelance at the moment, aren't you? Mm. You 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 are a trade yeah. under your own uh, yeah. your own name. We all uh, do. <laughs> are you um, are you planning to keep it that way, or do you ever have a vision of stepping back into an agency as CD ECD? Uh, no, I I'm, I'm even too old to do that. Um, really? I, I, I don't think... It's weird in advertising. It's the only industry, because if you look at... So you've seen a movie, um, sort of thinking top of my head, and it's about a firm of architects, and, and there's usually the the wise one who founded the practice, and he's usually bald, and he's got a black polo neck sweater and a, a nice trendy goatee and some cool glasses. And let's just call him Martin... Advertising, there's no Martins. You get to about 40, 45, and if you're there, you look weird and you feel weird, and there's no reason for it. I mean, even in football, Roy Hodgson's like 72. It's not like you're you're an athlete and you really can't run or play in your 40s like you could in your 20s. Um, that That's the way it is. And they go on and on, and quite rightly, that they want to attract more women and more um, uh, people from black and ethnic backgrounds and that's absolutely great but those women and those people they're attractive will still be quite junior if you like whereas if I go into a place or people from my from my vintage we will remember the ECD as a junior is to show us his work or her work and although we'll get on it's all fine and and they don't quite understand, look, we, I don't want your job, I don't fucking know, I don't want your title, I don't want anything. Uh, just pay me some money, I'll do some work. Some really are like that, they get you in for that very reason. But a lot of them are a bit insecure, uh, feel you might not take them seriously with their swanky new title, uh, and so they can't have older people in there because it makes them feel junior. I, I, I've, I've had that. I, I remember there was an account man who became the managing director of an agency that I was doing some work for. And he was really nice, but there was like fear in his eyes because he was the graduate trainee who had to sh- uh, schlep round to radio. Sh- you know, part of his training was to come out with me. And even though I could care less about his job, <laughs> it, it was almost all, not don't take the piss out of me, but, but, but I'm the managing director now. I could see it in his face. Uh, and I, I think you will find that everywhere. And that's why it's difficult uh, for a lot of ECDs or uh, to take on older people. And I think the ageism, if that's what it is, I don't think it's ever going to change. So just get used to it. You're on your own. And I've had, you know, I've terrific fun. If I got run over by a bus, I am the the embodiment of making a little go a long way. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, I was so lucky to have to have got into advertising when I did. Because uh, they'd always find use for people that couldn't really function in, in any other industry. And I'll be certainly, I'd certainly be one of them. So no, I can't moan about it. Uh, and it's, it's lovely to be asked to be do things. And, and, and I'm, I must admit, you know, I'd be a liar if I said otherwise, COVID-19's brought it all to a halt for everyone, just because, you know, there's no point advertising McDonald's if you can't go in there and buy a Big Mac. So it, everyone's just got it on hold. So, But generally speaking, I've got tons of work. You get the odd, you get the odd bit, you go, shit, I've got no work. Everyone hates me, and then someone phones up. But, but generally, it's been really, really good. Right. Much nicer to work. Is there, um, so is there, uh, is there any, I presume you've, Pretty much worked with them all. Is there any agency you haven't done any work with yet that you would love to? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> work with all of them. Uh, I like what Nils Leonard's doing at Uncommon. I don't know if there's any role for me. I don't know. He's doing interesting stuff. I like him. I like him a lot. Uh, I've never done anything for them, but I don't quite know what I do for him, really. No, Uncommon uh, no, I, keeps I've honestly up. worked for all of them, and 
I've always been surprised by how shit some of the good ones, the allegedly good ones are. Are you prepared to give any names? No, I don't, uh, no, really. <laughs> I, don't I remember there was one where um, I was given this radio script to produce because I produce other people's work as well. I didn't say, no, it's been written by blah, 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 our head of writing. Oh, really? There. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, um, and there was, there was another time where um, I, w- I was um, working for a production company and they got this script in and I remember saying to them, uh, it, it just didn't rhyme. It wasn't right. It was it, it, it was a long song and it went on for ages. And I was just saying, look, for fuck's sake, don't tell them it's me. Just say your friend who works in musical theatre has suggested. Tell him fucking Stephen Sondheim has suggested that. And they would do it. It was so badly written. And I watched them going up and getting an award for it. I thought, yeah. Oh, man. Go. You know? <laughs> Yeah, didn't I mean they came up with the initial idea, but it was so poor. Anyway, but so that yeah, there's a lot of that, a lot of that. But um, on the positive note, you're keeping busy during COVID, and hopefully yeah. you will be doubly so when we all come back out. Exactly, I, I'm I, I'm I'm lucky. I'm grateful. I really am, and I just believe happiness is gratitude, and I am happy. Happy that you've sought my opinion about this. You know, seriously, I mean it. Uh, happy that I collected all those records and, you know, it's not like I'm dying, but, you know, if I did get run over by a bus, um, it turned out way better than um, than I thought it would and it's due to a lot of nice people in a really nice industry. I love Manchester as well. Um, yeah. I've, I've been up there a lot. I, I did a lot of work with, um, remember Mrs. Merton, Caroline Craig, Caroline, you, know, you were a baby. Uh, Craig Cash, the Royal Family, yeah. uh, Eve Coogan. I've done a lot of work up in Manchester with them. Uh, I always like it out there. Ah, it's like London, but it's northern, a bit smaller, but it's the same sort of attitude. It's nice. It's city to it. When were you last there? Oh, God, it was actually for Caroline Hearn's funeral, whenever that was, which was about three years ago. Uh, but again, uh, you know, it's lovely. Nearly got run over by a tram because I didn't hear it coming. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they do that. They give you a little... Yeah, because you're not used to it. We don't have trams here. <laughs> yeah, you can't step in front of the tube. No, I, knew, I was so nearly did, yeah. And um, we shall uh, speak again sometime. Real joy. All right, take care.